Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through chapter 8, verse 4. This is found on pages 812 and 813 in the Pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd invite you to take that one with you as a gift from us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. My name is Anthony Emerson, and I am the other associate pastor here at Christ Community Brookside. If this is your first time here this morning, I too just want to welcome you and say we're, we're glad that you're with us at Christ Community. And at Christ Community, all five of our campuses, uh, over the past several months, we've been walking through the book of Matthew, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament. And in recent weeks, we've been spending some time in the Sermon on the Mount, this block of teaching, main block of teaching of Jesus in Matthew. And we just finished that last week. And so we're moving on today. We get to see the story of what Jesus does after he finishes this famous speech. It's a story that's at times odd and surprising, a story that explains more about who this unlikely king was and is. But before we jump in, would you pray with me? Lord, you've spoken to your people all throughout history hundreds and thousands of times, and we ask that you would do so again now. You are present everywhere at all times, but we ask that you would be present to our hearts this morning. And Lord, you are loving and compassionate and just and holy beyond anything that we can imagine. And we ask that you would further reveal yourself to us today. We need you, Lord. In your name we we pray. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, we hosted at Christ Community a speaker named Michael Ramsden, who comes from Oxford, England. And Mr. Ramsden, in one of his lectures, addressed the issue of politics and Missouri and Kansas just having uh, the voting for the presidential primaries the last few weeks. Uh, I thought this was a, a relevant Uh, topic, and and I think he has an interesting and intriguing insight. He said that contemporary politics in the West, meaning the United States, Western Europe, could be explained, at least in part, by this, that our modern society, the worst sin in our modern society, the one we look down upon most, is hypocrisy. Not being true to yourself, not being true to your principles, compromising. And the central virtue in modern society that, that we think of is being true to yourself. 
being unashamed of who you are, fulfilling your desires, not letting others control you. If you watch movies, if you read books, if, if you read any kind of media, watch any kind of media, you see this sort of message implicitly there all over. Be true to yourself. And so Ramsden says politics in a culture like this that has these values has become not just about left versus right, but about establishment versus anti-establishment. And you see this not only in our presidential campaign cycle, but you see this in Europe. Uh, you see this in other elections as well. And, and the establishment are those with power, with authority, that are in office, but who are perceived, whether it's fair or not, to be in some way hypocritical, to be compromising too much, to not be sticking to their principles, whether that's true or not. And the anti-establishment are those who are perceived, again, whether it's true or not, to be true to themselves, to stick to their principles, but who lack the office, who lack the authority and the influence to get things done. And we seem to think you can't have both of these. You can't have both power and be able to stick to your principles fully. And so we have this struggle between establishment and anti-establishment, fighting for votes to validate themselves, these two groups. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus doesn't fit into this establishment, anti-establishment paradigm. He transcended. Jesus doesn't need your vote. He does not need your vote. Now, just to be clear, just because someone needs your vote doesn't make them a, a bad person. It just makes them a not Jesus. And I, I hope that nothing that's said this morning is in any way taken to diminish the importance and the significance of engaging in the political process, whether that's running for office, whether that's voting, donating, whatever it might be. We affirm that. That is one way to be salt and light in the world. But Jesus still doesn't need your vote. And there's three reasons to say this that I, I hope will help us unpack what we mean by this. And the first reason to say this is that, according to our passage, Jesus runs a bad campaign. He runs a bad campaign. Now, Matthew, in this biography, all the way through, has been carefully demonstrating that Jesus is the foretold, promised king. Jesus isn't just going around doing cool things and being nice to people, sort of aimlessly. Everything that he does is geared toward bringing about and establishing his perfect kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is no exception. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a group of sayings, wise proverbs that Jesus kind of puts together, but it's a coherent whole that, that Jesus uses. He seamlessly puts this together, together to give a vision of what life in the kingdom looks like. It's Jesus' announcement speech. He is laying out his platform of what the kingdom looks like. So now in chapter 8, Jesus has ended this speech. He's on the move. His campaign is off to a great start. People are amazed at his teaching. Great crowds are following him. But notice what Jesus does next. 
Look with me again at chapter 7, verse 28, the passage that we just read. I'll read it again. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In chapter 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, check this out, says Matthew, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. This is a beautiful story. To us, this seems nice. Jesus heals a leper. That's, that's great. But in that culture, in first century Jewish culture, lepers were not just people with an unfortunate disease that you should feel sorry for. Lepers were unclean, religiously, ritually unclean, and you did not touch them. They couldn't enter the temple. They couldn't enter a city because they were unclean. If they touched somebody else, they contaminated that other person. That other person become unclean. So you avoided them. In the book of Leviticus, you don't have to turn there, but really quickly, in the book of Leviticus, one of the books of the Jewish law, it explains what life is like for a leper. And it says in Leviticus chapter 13, listen to this, it says the the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So they needed to stay outside of town so that they wouldn't touch anybody. They needed to wear a certain kind of clothing. They needed to have their hair in a certain way so that if you saw them, you would know who they were. And just in case, despite all those obstacles, someone comes close to them, they have to cry out, unclean, unclean. It's not exactly a self-esteem builder. But these laws were put in place because if you touched a leper, you would end up likewise being a social outcast. Now, if you were Jesus' campaign manager, as he starts out, and you're laying out the strategy with him, you're going over it, you're saying, all right, Jesus, we need to stay on message, we need to be consistent in what we're saying to the people, we need to kiss some babies, and also, don't touch lepers. This is at the top of the list of things you want to avoid. And Jesus comes down from the mountain he hits the campaign trail, and the first thing he does is he touches a leper. Great move, Jesus. Now, he heals the leper miraculously. The leper becomes clean. Talk about a political victory. This is going to boost his following like crazy. But Jesus heals the leper in private away from the cameras and journalists, and then he tells the leper to not tell anyone who had healed him. This is a bad campaign. And as you go through this chapter, we're not going to cover all of it, it's too long, but just a few highlights, it, it, get, it just gets worse. Look at verse 5. 
It says, Jesus entered Capernaum, and a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now pause. A centurion is a Roman military officer. Rome in Israel at this time is the political enemy. They conquered Israel. They are occupying Israel. They are taxing Israel. To consort with a Roman military officer, Jesus, is political suicide. You can't do that. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 7, he says, I will come and heal him. He wants to go to this Roman officer's house. Do you know how bad that photo op will look? This is a bad campaign. And we need to move on, but let me point out just a couple more highlights here. In verses 14 through 18, as we move through the chapter, Jesus does some more healings. Some good things are happening. A crowd is still following him. And then in verse 19, a scribe comes up to him. A scribe who is a religious and community leader, well-respected, comes up to him, wants to follow him, wants to give him his endorsement, as it were. This would be a pretty good feather in Jesus' hat. To have a scribe as part of his following would legitimize everything that he's saying. Jesus, though, doesn't welcome him onto the team, but challenges him. He has to, for some reason. Look at verse 19. The the scribe comes up to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're Jesus' campaign manager, you're thinking, first of all, what does that mean? Second of all, why don't you just welcome him with open arms? Why are you challenging him? You're almost being past frustrated anymore. You're about to give up because this guy doesn't make sense. And the chapter ends with Jesus leaving behind these huge crowds that have been following him, going on a boat trip across the sea to this other region, and that other region ends up asking you to get out. And the reason is he he casts two demons out of these these two demon-possessed men, but he sends them into a large herd of pigs, and the pigs drown. And for that city, those pigs were probably worth a lot of money. In an agricultural area like that, that big herd of pigs probably a significant part of that economy. And so the, the people of this city come out and beg Jesus to leave them. Jesus' campaign began in chapter 8 with great crowds following him. It ends here, at least in this chapter, with people telling him to get out. It's a bad campaign. So why does Jesus do these things? He's doing them intentionally. He's not just bumbling around making mistakes. He has a plan. And in the Lord of the Rings, forgive me if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I'm going to go over the basics, but the evil Sauron simply needs to reclaim his ring of power, right, in order to become unstoppable. And the good guys think that the best strategy to keep the ring out of Sauron's hand is to send the ring straight into Sauron's country where his armies are swarming the land, he has fortresses, 
and they're going to send it with two little people. They think this is the best, this seems like the worst possible plan. But they knew that the ring could be destroyed only in Sauron's country. They knew what they were doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's deliberately making these seemingly awful decisions, which begs the question, if he's doing these things on purpose, how is he going to succeed? What's his plan? How could someone not need a vote at all, doesn't care about popularity? And the answer is that Jesus already has all authority. He doesn't need your or anyone else's vote. He can run a bad campaign because he already has all authority. You can see this throughout this whole chapter. When he heals the leper, the leprosy leaves immediately. It obeys him, if you will. When the centurion comes up to him and Jesus offers to go to his house, the centurion says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word. You have the authority. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And that's what happens. Jesus says the word, and the man is healed at that moment. Jesus goes and heals a woman by just touching her hand, and immediately she's healed. Complete authority, complete power. The scribe then comes up to Jesus, and another disciple does as well, both wanting to follow him. And Jesus responds to them, by demanding complete and utter allegiance to him. Nothing less will do. You have to approach me as one who has a claim of absolute authority over you, Jesus says to them. Jesus doesn't need your vote. He already has all authority. But the episode in this chapter that most clearly displays Jesus' authority is found in verses 23 through 27. I want to read this together, and notice as we read this how Jesus' authority plays out here. It says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? In the Old Testament, there is only one being who is able to control the winds and the sea. In creation, in the exodus from Egypt, in the Psalms, in Jonah, there is one being only who, can, who has this kind of power, and that's none other than Yahweh, the one true God. The men here marvel, they are shocked, and they're wondering, what, what have we got ourselves into? Who is this guy? They thought initially that he was a great moral teacher. Then he started doing miracles they said, oh, he's a prophet. But now they're wondering if they weren't mistaken. Teachers and prophets don't command the wind and the seas and tell them what to do. Maybe a prophet could pray to God and ask God to control the forces of nature, but a prophet doesn't just up and rebuke the ocean like it's a child. 
A mere teacher or prophet doesn't have that kind of authority. My wife and Melissa and I have a funny little dog, and her name is Dai, which is Chinese for cute. And this whole situation makes me feel very manly. <laughs> and Dai is well behaved. She comes and she goes when we tell her to. She sits when we tell her to. She doesn't bark too much. We have a, a kind of authority over her. Now, most dogs are bigger than her. And when she encounters other dogs, nine times out of ten, she is not going to be the dominant one in the relationship. Now, other dogs could influence her, bark at her, intimidate her maybe, make her run away or something. But we have a totally different sort of relationship with her than, than other dogs. We don't just influence her, she listens to and obeys us. We have a, a kind of authority over her. Jesus, likewise, does not just influence the storm or the different sicknesses that he heals. He has authority over them. And his kingly authority extends not only over leprosy and a scribe and the winds and the waves, but it extends over your marriage. It extends over your singleness, over your finances, over your vocation, whatever you do. He has authority over all nations. He is the king after all. And each individual sitting in this room has to understand that Jesus has a total, comprehensive, absolute claim of authority over you. He doesn't need your vote. And this sounds terrible. Right? Especially for us who live in a democracy. This is a guy who claims total authority over everything that I do, and I don't even get a say in this. I don't, I don't get to vote. You may be thinking, how, how is this not horrible news? How is this not terrible for me? Well, inherent in that kind of a reaction, which is perfectly natural, is a commitment to freedom in, in a good way. Authority seems to take away personal freedom, right? But let me say this. What we often think of as freedom is overrated. Now, don't get me wrong. Freedom is a true good that God has created us with and that we shouldn't take lightly. But over time, we have come to think of freedom. We've twisted the definition in into what philosophers call negative freedom. Okay, and negative freedom is freedom from all constraints rather than freedom to pursue good. And this negative freedom, freedom from all outside influences, has in many cases become sacred in our culture. We see this, for example, in the song Let It Go from Frozen. Listen to these lyrics. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Freedom from all constraints. That's what's being set forth as freedom. But that's not freedom. I'll give you an example of why it's not. 
I love chocolate. I snack on chocolate candy bars. My favorite kind of cookie is chocolate chips. I don't drink coffee unless I have some hot chocolate mix in it. So if you see me putting hot chocolate back in my coffee back there, that's what I'm doing. I, I eat too much chocolate already, but if I could eat chocolate all the time, I would. <laughs> but why, why can't I? Well, if I did, I would probably become diabetic. I would probably lose teeth. I would probably become uncontrollably obese. It would be unhealthy. And I am willing to limit my freedom to consume chocolate, to some degree at least, <laughs> in order to avoid those things. Tim Keller says this. He says, freedom is not then simply the absence of restrictions, but rather consists of finding the right liberating restrictions. Put another way, we must actively take tactical freedom losses in order to receive strategic freedom gains. So submitting to the right disciplines, like not eating too much chocolate, results not in less freedom, but in greater freedom. Likewise, submitting to the right leader does not result in less freedom. It results in better and greater freedom. And speaking of the right leader, the other reason that Jesus having all authority should encourage us and not bother us is that Jesus uses his authority for our good. He doesn't abuse authority. He isn't a tyrant. Instead, his authority results in things like a leper being cleansed, being restored to society, results in things like in the centurion's servant being healed of paralysis, in opposing evil forces, in a deadly storm being calmed. Jesus exercises benevolent authority over all these things. He is the good king, after all. And his good kingly authority extends not only over leprosy and a scribe and the winds and the waves, but his good kingly authority extends over your marriage. He is able, he has the authority and the power to restore even the most broken relationships. He is the good king over your singleness. He is able to surround you with deep and satisfying friendships. He's the good king over your finances. He has the authority to make sure you are provided for. He's the good king over your vocation. He can make your work meaningful and fruitful. And he's the good king over all nations, and no politician can challenge him. He is king over all. Now, what does this mean for you and me? As this week, what does this mean for you and me? Jesus doesn't need your, your vote. In fact, he doesn't need anything from us at all. But what does he want from us? What does he want from you? And there are two broad things that I think God wants from us this morning. And the first is for you to obey him. Simple. Jesus doesn't need your vote. He doesn't need you to drive up his approval rating but he wants your obedience. We talked some about obedience last week, but that was in the context of Jesus and his teaching. Today, 
Jesus goes beyond that. He says, not only do I have authority over the intellectual realm, I'm able to teach really well, but I have authority over everything. And Jesus is not only a teacher who expects obedience to his teaching in certain parts of Scripture, but he's a king who expects obedience to all that he says in his word and in every nook and cranny of your life and my life. He has not simply set down in writing a group of teachings for us to study and to learn from, but he is present and he is active today as the good king and he wants your obedience. So what are you not obeying the king in? Where are you lacking obedience? Maybe how you relate to your family members, maybe how you spend your free time, I don't know. Whatever it is, a litmus test that you can use, it's really simple, you can give yourself to figure out if you're being obedient in a particular part of your life, is to say about that thing, I am doing whatever it is for the glory of God. For example, I am cheating on my schoolwork for the glory of God. Probably not. How about I am going to forgive this person who hurt me for the glory of God? I am going to buy a $50,000 car for the glory of God. Uh, Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. Be honest with yourself. But Jesus wants your obedience. And as we move to a close, the other thing that the king wants from you today is for you to trust him, which is what enables you to obey him after all. Again, this is simple. But why should you trust him? Well, think about this. Usually when I picture a king, I think of someone with a crown on his head, rubies set in it, sitting on a large, ornate throne, maybe has royal rings on his fingers for people to kiss when they bow down to him or to use as a signet ring, sitting in a large throne room in a beautiful palace with dukes and earls and noblemen around. But Jesus as king looks quite different. Instead of wearing a gold crown, Jesus wears a crown of thorns. Instead of sitting on an ornate throne, he was crucified on a cross. Instead of having rings on his fingers, he had nails driven through his hands. He was not in a throne room or a beautiful palace, but was outside the city where trash and outcasts belonged. He was not surrounded by dukes and earls, but by two criminals with bystanders hurling insults at him. Jesus' seemingly bad bad campaign was never headed to the White House or to Buckingham Palace, but for the cross. And this is at the heart of why we can trust him, that he did not have any kind of self-interest when he finished his sermon and came down and ministered among the people. He didn't have any kind of self-interest in mind when he went to the cross. Instead, he had you and me in mind. He had you and me in mind when he died for us as our king, taking all of our sin upon himself and bearing the consequences on our behalf. All of the times that we have not obeyed, all of the times that we have lacked trust in him, He pays 
for it once for all for those who believe in Him. It is on the cross that Jesus establishes His kingdom, where He makes it possible for you and me to enter into the kingdom of heaven, forgiven and cleansed. Won't you trust Him? And that's not even where the story ends. As we'll celebrate next Sunday, Jesus, the unlikely king, not only dies for our sins, but he proves his authority even over death, rising from the dead on the third day. The resurrected Christ still had the holes in his hands from where the nails were driven through when he was risen from the grave. He's a king who will always be marked by his sacrificial love for us. And the unlikely risen king stands before you today with his arms open wide, holes still in his hands, and hear him say, I don't need your vote. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I love you. Won't you trust me? Won't you obey me? Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you are all-powerful and you are our provider, and we worry so often, even though this is your world. There's real pain, there is real struggle, there is real sin and evil, but Lord, when it comes down to it, you are powerful enough to deliver us, to take care of us, to provide for us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would empower us by your Spirit to trust you, to obey you, Lord. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you that you've used your authority for our good, and you continue to do so today. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. You continue to do so. In your name we pray. Amen.